Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello. Hello, Lee. Hi. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you guys? Good, good. How has your stay in New York been? I, I called somebody an asshole the other day in the street, which is like, you know, kind of, I think, you know, you've kind of, you're a real New Yorker right. when you can call somebody an asshole in <laughs> right. the street. I know, it's almost like a term of endearment. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, exactly. I know, I should have got a pat on the back. <laughs> I'm Amy. And I'm Jamie. This is Clever. Today, we're talking to Lee Broom. Lee Broom is a UK-based product and interior designer. He's been a creative his whole life, starting off in theater as a young boy and then studying fashion design at Central St. Martin's. He eventually found his way to interiors and product design. But that got us thinking about how he brings all of these outside influences into his work, because his work is a real showcase of drama, right, Jamie? It's very much like a theatrical performance. He thinks about everything. You know, that actually got me thinking about how designers kind of come up with their creative ideas. I don't know about you, Amy, but when I am trying to force myself to be creative, I end up looking at other things other than the thing I'm trying to make. So like if I wanted to paint a picture, I'm not going to go look at paintings. I'm going to go for a walk and look at nature. I'm going to go look at architecture or something completely different from what I'm actually trying to make. Well, that was one of the things that I sort of rebelled on in school. I remember we had an assignment and you, you can't be necessarily as expressive with furniture design, right? You, right. It still has to have pretty solid engineering. In right, order it has to, to function. Body. Yeah, if it's going to be a chair. So we had this chair assignment and the teacher told us to go look at all these other chairs. And there was a lot of validity to that assignment, right? Because you can look at engineering, you can look at joinery, you can look at different ways to support the body. And I basically said, no, I don't get inspiration for chairs from other chairs. That's like inbreeding. (laughs) (laughs) Granted, you know, I was a, a punk student, but I've always found the really interesting area for me is the point of intersection. It's the point where you bring a disparate idea into a familiar space mm-hmm. that it gets really exciting. And so outside influences are my jam. 
Yeah, I, I was also thinking too, like we are, I mean, with the internet now, you know, Instagram, Pinterest, all that stuff, we're kind of inundated with looking at stuff that other people are making. So I think it's even harder now to disconnect yourself from the overwhelming amount of visual images that are out there in front of your face every day. And I think that could hinder your creativity because you could, you know, be looking at so many chairs that eventually like you think you're making something new, but it actually looks like a chair you've already saw that your subconscious like thought about or remembered. If you think about interior designers too, they're kind of stuck because their clients are looking at Instagram and Pinterest too. So their clients are bringing them rooms and saying, I want my room to look just like this. And the designer's like, wait a minute, you know, I, I'm in a creative field. I don't want to just copy another designer's work. Well, yeah. And I also think that there is this rut of looking at other rooms to decide what your room should look like. And there's a lot of ways you can look at nature or paintings or other environments and bring a sense of that environment into the room in a really unique way. And interior designers, one, should be allowed license to do that. And two, should train their brains to do that because that's how you generate really unique environments. And that's something that Lee Broom is amazing at, not just his product design but his environments that he creates yeah yeah you can feel it as soon as you walk in you feel like you've been transported so as we mentioned he started his design career in fashion in fact he worked with vivian westwood before he even went to central st martin's i know right crazy (laughs) we're gonna talk to him about that and while he was in school he started doing some interior side jobs and before you know it he was designing full-scale commercial interiors for bars and nightclubs he's moved into product design but he always keeps the drama of theater and fashion very close at hand he's known for creating wonderful theatrical spectacles at trade events And he's won so many awards, too many, in fact, to mention, but uh, let's just name a few. British Designer of the Year Award 2012, Wallpaper Design Awards, Power 200 List of International Designers, Top 20 Under 40 of 2015, and the Queen's Award for Enterprise in 2015. Jamie, I've never gotten an award from the Queen. (laughs) I don't know if a lot of people have. (laughs) Let's talk to Lee. My name is Lee Broom. I live in London and I work in London and I'm a product designer and an interior designer. And I do those professions because I I love it. I couldn't think of anything else that I'd like to do more. That is wonderful. And your joy and passion for that work totally shows up in your products and your interiors. Oh, thank you. I did a little reading on you and I also Mm -hmm. um, asked a friend of mine who's a Brit and it turns out that somebody who was born in Birmingham is called a Brummie. Is that correct? <laughs> yes. Yes, that is true. <laughs> that is true. Okay, so tell us all about your childhood as a Brummie in the Midlands. What was your boyhood like? Birmingham's a big city, so it's the second biggest city in the UK. So from that respect, I've always been a, a city boy, which is probably why I ended up moving to London. I like cities, and that's why I love New York as well. And it was a happy childhood. It was an unusual childhood in the fact that I didn't just go to academic school. I also went to performing arts school as well. And I was a professional actor from like the age of seven till I was about 17 years old. So wait, professional actor, theater, TV, movies, commercials, mainly, mainly theater. 
Okay. Some bits of TV as well and some commercials, but mainly theatre. So I was working all the time and I was kind of in and out of school a lot. I used to have a lot of tutors. Um, I spent a lot of time in London, like, and also kind of going for auditions all the time as well. So it was a kind of unusual childhood, I think, in that respect. And was this a passion of yours or were you sort of like the child of stage parents who were really kind of pushing this on you? <laughs> well, I've been told it was my idea. Um, but, <laughs> I mean, I, I loved it. And I, my sister, she went to dance class and I said to my mum and dad that, look, I really want to go to, to dance class. So um, they enrolled me and I guess I excelled in it. And we used to do all types of performing arts from drama to dance to ballet to singing and, and everything. And then we got an agent and I started to perform in lots of different shows. And I used to get a lot of work. So my career path had already been decided from about the age of nine and I was on the road to, to doing that already. So what was that like? Were you in shows where it was primarily younger kids or were there shows where you were in it with mostly adults? Initially, the first few shows were ones where there was other kids in there, but it was always like adults in the show as well. So it would normally be with like a group of kids and we'd initially kind of like be the village kids in a show or something. But then as I grew older, I was performing with adults, but the child part in the play or in the musical or whatever it might be. So I actually spent a lot of time with adults. Yeah, it seems like an unusual situation. Was it harder for you to make friends? Were most of your friends in school or were they other actors? I didn't find it difficult to make friends with other kids necessarily, but I really enjoyed the company of adults. I felt really comfortable around adults. Actually, when I was younger, I couldn't wait till I was grown up. I remember like I couldn't wait till I was in my 20s and I could buy my own place. And it's kind of an unusual way of looking at life when you're, when you're a kid. But I guess it was kind of like the sort of sophisticated conversation of actors in London that I was kind of subjected to at that age, I suppose. So I think I was really grown up for, for a kid. Hmm. And were you traveling and were you doing these productions sort of unchaperoned or were they the other adults in the production your chaperones or were your parents with you? No, my my mum was always with me. Okay. So she would, yeah, my parents worked for themselves. They had a printing company and they worked with each other. And my mum would kind of step out of that and then she would chaperone me. And it very much became part of her lifestyle as well. So I think they were kind of surprised when I decided change my career path because it had been something that kind of we'd all invested in as a family but particularly my mother and so she would always come with me to do shows up until the age of 16 and then I could kind of go to auditions and things by myself. I mean it sounds like you've always had kind of an old soul or sort of an adult mentality but do you feel like you grew up too fast or do you feel like you just wanted to grow up faster than other people and that was appropriate for you? At the time, I didn't know, not at all. I mean, because I loved what I was doing so much. And mm -hmm. I think the thing is, is that when you're part of that environment in a performing arts school, and you are surrounded by a lot of other kids in, when you're actually in your class, you know, it's only when you're sort of in shows that you're with kind of more adults. But 
you're all on this journey, this very ambitious journey of kind of wanting to succeed and wanting to do well. So for me, it was just part of what I was doing. I wanted to do well in that arena. I wanted to be a successful actor as an adult. And I loved the work. And I was kind of very ambitious as a child. And I guess that a lot of kids have that somewhere when they're growing up, when they are looking up to pop stars or actors and they want to be famous or they... Mm-hmm. You know, they want to be in that kind of position. But for me, it was kind of, it was a reality goal rather than a kind of moment. So you said until about the age of 16, is that when you shifted career paths? I'm sort of interested in your adolescence and, you know, a lot of teenagers are struggling to find a way to express themselves and, and really define their identity. But you've already been expressing yourself for years. And was that your primary form of expression, acting in theatre, or did you find that you needed another outlet? No, I I think looking back, it was probably more my primary form. I think there was a part of me, because I'd almost done it for so long, that was starting to get interest in in other things, Mm -hmm. and particularly design. I mean, it's interesting that my mother was the one who really kind of was part of, you know, my theatre background and very much part of that world. And my dad kind of influenced me in, in design because they owned a printing company, but he was also an, an artist and he taught me how to draw. And I remember um, drawing with him kind of every evening that I was at home and and encouraged to do that. And I knew that I was a good designer as well. So it was kind of interesting that the, the thing that I'd been growing up with wasn't the thing I ended up doing. And it was kind of the influence of my dad that ended up being the the thing that I did. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I used to color with my dad all the time. And I think that had, I guess, some sort of influence on me now because you know, I started making art. So it's it's interesting how you can like, you know, connect and bond with a parent. And then that ends up being something that you're incredibly passionate about. So what kind of things did you draw? Was it like portraits or puppies or... Did you actually design, did you design products? So I was really into architecture. So I used to design houses and I used to design like shopping malls or kind of like small cities and things. Um, And yeah, I would kind of work on a, on a sort of building and then it would just sort of grow and grow and grow and turn into a kind of city. And then I'd sort of scrap it and then start again on something else. So it was very much design orientated rather than kind of fine art orientated. And then I've also started to develop an interest in in fashion, particularly kind of around the age of, you know, 15, 16. And I used to do lots of fashion sketches all Mm. the time. So it was kind of like those two areas that I was really designing. Were you doing menswear, womenswear, both? Uh, Womenswear, yeah. I found it easier to draw a woman. I still find it difficult to draw a guy for some reason. Huh. I mean, I know there's, that theater sort of works its way into your life and, and your work. Were you interested in big theatrical women's wear or more like ready to wear? I was a huge fan of Vivian Westwood and Jean-Paul Gaultier and Johnny Versace. So it was kind of really those kind of theatrical kind of outfits and the presentations of the shows that I really loved and the drama. And then I went on to become obviously really big fans of the work of John Galliano and Alexander McQueen and people who kind of put drama into their into their work. So those are the kind of designers that I was that I was into. And is that what influenced your decision to go to Central St. Martins? 
Well, actually, it was prior to that. So I was still acting. Okay. And I decided to enter a fashion design competition, which was called the Young Designer of the Year Award. And it was a national competition, and it was judged by Vivian Westwood. And I won the competition, and I got to meet Vivian at the awards ceremony fashion show that we had in London. And I actually went up to her with an autograph book and pen (laughs) and asked her for her autograph, and she wrote her telephone number down. And I was kind of gobsmacked. And she said that if I wanted to pursue a career in fashion, um, I could give her a call and maybe arrange to spend a couple of days at her studio with her and she can kind of take me through her day so that I can kind of see how, you know, the kind of real industry works. That is so generous of her, but also good eye on her spotting that talent and luring you in. Yeah, no, it was amazing. I mean, I was there with her for two days and it was just me and her in her office, which was kind of, it's a tiny, tiny space. And I was party to all the meetings that she was having with her accessories designers and pattern cutters and her husband. And she would talk to me about her passion for the history of art and her love of literature and how she approached pattern cutting. She showed me some of the patterns that she was working on and how she was taking original patterns from 18th century cutting and then modernizing them on the tailor's dummy for new collections. And it was an amazing experience. And I was like a sponge, you know, I was just Mm -hmm. kind of soaking everything up. And you're how old at this point? You're 17 or something? Just turned 17. Yeah. Okay. And after the two days was up, I had a kind of book of outfits that I wanted to show her. So these are things that I've been doing in my bedroom, like for the past, I don't know, six months or whatever. And there was around a hundred different outfits that I'd sketched, but kind of real sort of beautiful illustrations. And I showed Vivian and her husband, Andreas. And afterwards she said, well, if you want, you can stay and work here as an intern. We can't pay you, but you can work in the design studio and the pattern cutting studio. Um, So I ended up working there for nearly 10 months. Wow. And yeah, I I used the money that I'd made from acting and I basically moved to London for like 10 months. And I worked in the studio with the pattern cutting team and the design team. And then she took me to Paris as well to dress the models. So my job in Paris was to dress Kate Moss um, and Naomi Campbell. And it was what? kind of in that period um, That's of so the kind of supermodels. Awesome. Wow, that is the coolest. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) So, and and I was so young, you know. I mean, and I turned eighteen. I remember when I was uh, just before I went to Paris, I think, or just after, and it was just a whirlwind experience. And also, I had no um, training in how to sew or how to pattern cut or anything. So initially, I was kind of like making cups of tea and running errands and you know, kind of doing whatever I could to fit in. And then I started to learn how to sew and I'd do things with the accessories. And and it was it was incredible. And it was that that kind of made me then question, okay, do I want to go into acting or 
am I going to go into fashion? And I decided that I wanted to go into fashion. Yeah, I was going to ask you, what did your mom say? <laughs> was she like, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, she wasn't angry at all. But I think kind of deep down, she was a little bit disappointed in a way because it was a big part of her life as well, this journey that we've been on, you know, together. But she couldn't argue with the fact that I'd won the Young Designer of the Year Award and I right. was working for Westwood. So she knew that it was an amazing opportunity and that I had a talent for, for this and that I could pursue it. So I eventually applied to go to Central St. Martins and got a place there. So one quick question about Vivian Westwood before we move on to your years at Central St. Martins. Mm-hmm. How did the relationship between the two of you develop? Do you look at her as a as a mentor? Obviously, the time you spent there was incredibly educational, I can imagine. Mm -hmm. But personally, between the two of you, do you feel like she's sort of a fairy godmother, a mentor, a big sister? I think at the time, yes. When I look at my work now, I kind of see references to that period. Mm -hmm. Not specifically, but just the kind of philosophy behind what I do, that idea of you know, looking to the past, whether it's aesthetically or the way things have been manufactured or the techniques that have been used to create something, and then inputting that into contemporary design. And I think that I definitely picked that up from my time with her because her view was don't reference your peers. If you're going to reference anybody, go back and see how Mm. people did it years ago. And I've always had that philosophy now So I guess it's always been there instilled in me since that whole period, even to this day. Interesting. Okay, so then you applied to Central St. Martin's and tell us about your education there and what that was like for you personally and the growth that you experienced. Interestingly, Vivian kind of hinted that I shouldn't go to to fashion school because she felt that it was a homogenized environment and you would be put into a box and you know, if you want to get into this industry, you could do it by yourself. But at that time, it felt like that had to be the natural route for me to to go and to get an education in something that I wasn't trained in. Mm -hmm. But it's very interesting that I ended up pursuing a career that I wasn't formally trained in. But at the time, I was desperate to learn the technique. But actually, at St. Martin's, they're not so hot on teaching you the technique. What they actually do is they are focused on teaching you how to be and to think like a designer and the process that you go through of research to the final product and the idea that you experiment as much as you possibly can while you're at university. Um, So actually, we had to learn how to sew and pattern cut outside of, of college which initially I found frustrating, but when I kind of finally, you know, got over myself and opened up my mind to actually what was happening on the course, mm-hmm. I realized how beneficial that was because it has enabled me to diversify as a designer, you know, and that actually the differences between making a jacket and making a, a lamp are not dissimilar in the mm-hmm. fact that you have your idea, you do your research you make a prototype, you make a sample, and then you make your production run. The processes are exactly the same. It's just the workings that are different. I didn't know how to make a jacket when I started St. Martin's, and I didn't know how to make a lamp when I started to design products. So you just learn how to do it. And as long as your design philosophy is there, then you kind of can do anything. 
I like that. And I agree with you. It's really the, the thinking that needs to be in place. And then it's a little bit of a scavenger hunt. You can go find the people with the technique and, and learn it if you're motivated to. But sometimes when you go to a school that's so focused on technique, you start to make only the things you know how to make. And I think yeah. if you approach it from a, I don't know how to make this, but that doesn't matter. I'll figure out how to make it way. Then you really are wide open. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I think it's kind of about that sort of confidence as well that you, that you can do it and that you can find out and, you know, you can, you can sort of learn those things. I mean, and obviously there has to be a kind of natural talent or a natural flair, but essentially at St. Martin's, what they were doing was teaching us how to be like designers because, you know, from that university, when you go out into the world to get a job, that's what they're wanting to employ you for is your flair as a designer, not for how good you can stitch a hem, right. you know? Mm-hmm. So I thought that was very you know, interesting and I, I liked that aspect of it eventually. So socially, most college kids need to sow their oats at some point. You seem like you've been working since you were nine years old. What was college like for you? I mean, you're an 18 year old with so much work experience under your belt already and so engaged in learning this new craft and art. But what were you doing for fun? Well, I think during that period of university and actually I studied for five years because I I went to. London College of Fashion for a year and then Camberwell College of Arts for a year before I went to St. Martin's. Mm. And I think kind of during those periods, I definitely kind of had more fun. I I suppose I've been a lot more disciplined up until that point. And when I moved to London, I just decided to embrace kind of not necessarily student life because being a student in London at St. Martin's isn't like being a student anywhere else you know our university was in Soho and you know we're very much just part of you know young people living in uh in London so I kind of I would say that I probably let go a little bit more during that period you know started drinking going out partying meeting friends and just having fun just doing what you kind of should do in your early 20s good I'm glad to hear that (laughs) (laughs) And I know what you mean. I went to FIT in New York City when I was 18 and it wasn't like a traditional college campus situation. It was more like living in New York City when you're young. (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. Which which I loved. I mean, the the only downside was that, you know, London was so expensive and I'm sure you had the same as being a student in New York City. It's so Mm -hmm. expensive when you're in a big city like London or New York. So you kind of have to be uh, a student, but you have to also kind of like, you know, learn how to kind of make money as well at the same time. So it's it's actually quite a good learning. Do you know what I mean? You're always kind of poor, but, you know, I, I remember like even then I was, any money that I had, I would be kind of putting into my projects that I was doing and the presentations for the tutors. Yeah. That's not really changed now, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's on a different scale. Okay, so uh, we talked about your experience with fashion and and with theater, and we all know that you are currently designing products. However, there was a time in between there where you worked with interiors, and you kind of fell into that. Can you talk a little bit about how that happened? Yeah, so it it was really going back to the thing of wanting to kind of make money in London. And for the first couple of years I've been at St. Martin's I was working in a in a sex shop 
which I hated actually because it was <laughs> it was it was actually very very boring. And like when I first got that job, actually it was the only job that I could get in retail because I was sick of working in clubs and bars. And it was obviously the job that nobody wanted, but it was kind of it was <laughs> it paid the it bills. Was, it pays the bills. When you say sex shop, do you mean like dirty magazines and dildos and, and bondage gear? Or do you mean like a peep show or something where there's a performance going on? It was selling dildos and vibrators and kinky <laughs> underwear. But actually, you know what? It's like, it's a it's a place called, do you know Ann Summers? No, uh, but no. now I feel no. like it. <laughs> I'm not trying to catch you out here, by the way. Um, <laughs> it, it, it's actually like a, a big chain. So in, in a way, it was very commercial. It wasn't too seedy, but it was quite seedy. So um, <laughs> I, <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, I was, I, I didn't really enjoy working there so much. And mm-hmm. I, I, I wanted to work for myself. Mm-hmm. And I've always wanted to, to kind of earn my own money and work for myself. And I had an interest in interiors. Um, my flat that I was living in at the time, me and my flatmate used to kind of redecorate it regularly and do paint effects and kind of all this sort of stuff. And I started to basically make these mirror frames and also kind of go into bars and try and sell these mirror frames and then say to them, oh, I could also do bits of upholstery, I could do curtains, I could do some paint effects on the wall. And this started to turn into a little side business and I started to do quite well. And by the end of my course, um, I was asked to design a bar from kind of scratch from beginning to end. And so that's how I ended up doing my first interiors project. Which project was that? It was called Nylon. And oh. it was a bar in the city, in the kind of financial district in London, in Moorgate. And what they wanted me to do was to kind of get some friends from college and sort of do paint effects and things like that. But it was a it was a 25,000 square feet venue right in the heart of the city. And I got a friend of mine called Maki, a Japanese girl from college. And I said, look, do you want to help me do this venue? And she said, yes. So... We ended up doing kind of two concepts. We did one that was kind of based around paint effects and kind of very cheap version. And then we did another illustration, which was much more high end, where we put like booth seating in and Murano chandeliers. And it was very 70s and these floor to ceiling fish tanks. And they loved this concept. And this is basically us kind of like painting these illustrations by hand. We did about sort of 10 of them. They loved that concept. They got investment into the project and they ended up spending £750,000 on it, which is wow. like well over a million. Wow. And myself and Mackie project managed, designed the entire thing, worked with the contractors, designed a lot of the furniture. Um, we worked with the architects. We would hand sketch everything and then they would draw them as well afterwards and the space planning, everything. And it was a nine-month massive project. And it was really, and I've kind of said this before, it was like an intensive training course in interior design, but on a live project. And when the bar opened, it won even the Standard Bar of the Year Award and other things and became hugely popular. And so I had to ask myself again, okay, right, do I want to be a fashion designer or want to be an interior designer? 
because at that point I was still wanting to go down the, the fashion path. I wanted to set up my own label, but it was incredibly expensive to do that. I'd just done my final collection and to create new pieces required a lot of investment. And then here was a kind of job where I was working for myself. It was service-led, so there was no startup costs. And it was incredibly creative. And I was able to exercise the vision in my head in reality and somebody else is going to pay for it. Mm -hmm. So Mackie and myself decided to open up a design studio called Mackie Lee. And we designed interiors together for about four years. And you mostly did bars and restaurants? Yeah, it was mainly bars, independent bars and restaurants, mainly around London, but some around the UK. And we did about 25 projects over that sort of four or five year period. It was an amazing time. I mean, it was really kind of throwing yourself into the deep end of kind of running your own business and and working for yourself. And I think I kind of learned a lot kind of going into the kind of Lee Broom stage of my career from from that period with Mackie. I'm sure you learned through successes, but did you also learn through some mistakes? Mm, All the time. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) can can you share some with us? (laughs) Yeah, I think well, one of our first jobs was to design um, a VIP room in a West End nightclub. And we'd kind of designed all this kind of corner seating. And then I'd designed these mirrored furniture pieces, which were kind of cubes and oblongs and things, and basically put all the mirrored furniture in the venue, around 20 pieces. And they opened up the space and then... Three days later, the owner called me and said, every single table has smashed. <gasps> so that was a mistake. But um, <laughs> I think I like to think of it more as a learning process. Yes. But it really kind of taught me about durability working in bars and restaurants. And what you have to do is kind of you have to think about the aesthetic, but you've got to think about the fact that people are going to be clambering all over it. You know, mm. um, so, yeah, there was, there was a few mistakes like that. But it was, like I say, it was a it was a massive learning process. And, uh, you know, I kind of referenced that period kind of operationally a lot, I think. You were designing products for these spaces as well. Is that kind of how you moved into product design? Yes. We always tried to incorporate some kind of bespoke piece if we had the budget for it in the, um, in the space. And I, I really enjoyed that aspect of it. And in fact, I, you know, used to kind of sketch a lot kind of products that wouldn't necessarily get used for some of the spaces, but just kind of product ideas so that they were kind of on the back burner. We actually did quite a large project just before Mackie decided to move back to Japan. And it was for Wembley Stadium. And we were asked to redesign some of the boxes for the stadium, the corporate boxes. But they were more like furniture upgrades. So basically you have like a blue chip company that owns the box or an individual that owns it or a sponsor. And we would come in and say, we can offer you upgrades to redesign the space, which you pay for sort of like a um, a corporate space, or Mm -hmm. you could have more of a kind of casual space or something more bespoke. And we ended up doing like 40 of these boxes. And for that, we had to design a lot of the furniture ourselves. And that's where I really kind of 
open myself up to a kind of wide network of manufacturers in the UK who I could work with on more multiple products to make furniture pieces. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals, led by yours truly. And they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. 
Those are the letters ICFF.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. Let's talk about the crystal bulb. So Mm -hmm. you designed this light bulb that's similar to a regular light bulb, except it's a hand-blown, hand-cut crystal bulb that you would hang without a shade because it's so beautiful. So it's almost like a piece of crystal that you would put on your tabletop, except it's a light bulb. Yes. And would you consider this to be like your number one hit single slash turning (laughs) point product where things kind of shifted for you? Yes. Yeah, I I think so. That was like 20, 2011 or 2012? 2012. 2012. Yeah, we launched it in Milan in 2012. And we we did an exhibition where we created a British pub inside this modern art gallery space. Yes. And the crystal bulb was the sort of central focus, um, given the fact that it was crystal and we had decanter lights there as well. But yeah, it was. I think that was fair to say that it was a turning point for us. I think we were kind of known within the design community, mm-hmm. but I think that product sort of propelled us into the public consciousness and made us more well-known in, in kind of the public arena as well for our design. From a business perspective, did that tick any major boxes? Like, was it of a price point that made it more accessible? You know, it's small, so I'm sure shipping was easy did it make it easy to get orders overseas? Was that one of the first like mass production items you did? Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, and actually it, it came about because I designed a product called the decanter light, which was a crystal drinks decanter with the bottom cut off with a light fitting inside. And they were very, very popular, but they were vintage pieces. Mm. Um, now we make them completely brand new because we, we just couldn't find any more vintage ones at all. But we were selling a lot of those, um, but logistically they were becoming problematic to make because we were having to source them. Mm-hmm. And what I wanted to do was to create Actually, what happened first was I had a sample sale at my studio. So that was the first time that I'd actually sold directly to the public in a way, because mm-hmm. we would sell through dealers and right. stores or to architects and designers. And a lot of people would come in and go, have you got something that I can just kind of slot in or plug in or, you know, and it kind of really got me thinking that people wanted something maybe a bit smaller. And I was thinking about redeveloping this crystal decanter idea and, kind of just all these sort of ideas in my head. And I actually dreamt the crystal bulb. And I, I dream about products quite a lot. And I've got a notepad next to my bed. 
And often what happens is that I'll scribble it down and then in the morning I'll wake up and it will be the most ridiculous idea in the world. <laughs> but but um, in this case, I looked at it and I was like, oh, that's actually quite good. And I spoke to my partner and he was like, yeah, that's a really good idea. You need to develop that quickly. And it was actually eight weeks till we were showing in Milan and I had a different product to display for Milan. But I scrapped that. And we designed, manufactured, and did all of our samples for Milan in eight weeks for that wow. product. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> it was crazy. For me, it just fitted incredibly well aesthetically with the theme of what we were doing for that show anyway. But I think it kind of just hit the zeitgeist. I think I wanted to do something that was more accessible, that was smaller, but didn't compromise on the craft and up until that point a lot of the pieces I've been selling kind of retailed at sort of like minimum sort of $1,500 um, per unit and mm -hmm. I wanted to do something more accessible but I didn't want to do something that was watered down and this product wasn't it was made in exactly the same way it's kind of hand blown it's hand cut it's lead crystal it has an LED inside so it combines something very modern with something very traditional it's probably the most accessible price product that we did at that point, but it was the most expensive light bulb you'll ever buy. Yes. And that's what I loved about it. It kind of reminded me in a way of my fashion background, you know, with like big fashion houses like Chanel, you could be a huge fan of the brand and you would cover wanting a handbag, but you could never afford it. But you can always afford to get a Chanel lipstick and it will be the most expensive lipstick you'll buy and it will be of superb quality but it's your kind of entry into into that brand and that's what I liked about this product and I think that's what other people liked as well. Okay so you talked a little bit about your love of theater and how theater has influenced your product design your interior design mm -hmm. and you put on these incredible shows and experiences displays installations whatever you want to call them every year during London Design Week and and now you've jumped over the pond, you're doing it in New York. Could you talk a little bit about how product, interior, fashion, theater all kind of come together in your work? You know, I design from a kind of an emotional space as a designer. So when I'm creating products themselves, I'm kind of thinking about everything, kind of the whole encompassing experience, whether it be in somebody's home or whether it be in a presentation or a show or you know, something even more fantasy than that. I don't know, but I'm sort of seeing the kind of whole presentation. And I, I like to try and bring that to life in the presentations during these design weeks in some way, if I can. And really to take the viewer on a bit of a journey into kind of my head and what the kind of inspiration is behind the pieces. And yeah, it definitely stems from my theatre background. I wouldn't say that I channel it purposefully but I think that because that's part of my childhood it's always there kind of seeing it as a performance rather than just a, an exhibition if you like. And you have personally a history of performance is there some aspect of you that likes to be a performer alongside of your events and your elaborate settings and your beautiful products and interiors is there a Lee Broom character in this play? Well, less so than you would probably think. Like 
favorite part of this whole process is the designing part, you know, and the creating and the production. In in a way, once the performance is taking place, I'm immediately thinking of the next thing because it's like it's done in a way. So in some respects, my head is onto somewhere else. I think there's a certain aspect when you are a designer that's known and you have people that are coming to see you, there is a performance part to your personality, of course. I think you could say that about anything, you know? Mm -hmm. The world is a stage, you know? And when you put yourself in a position where you're going to present your work to the world, you know, you have a certain persona to, to do that in a sense. So there is some truth in that, I would say, but it, it's not the summation of everything. It's not anything that I would necessarily focus on. Do you think that any proportion of your success is due to personal charisma or just that ability to present your work and talk about it articulately and mix and mingle the way you need to do when you're out there promoting your products? Well, I, I know. I don't think so. I mean, I know a lot of designers who uh, find it very difficult to talk to people and they're very shy about presenting their work and it's the last thing they want to do in the world you know Mm -hmm. I don't mind it but they're still doing very well also sure you know what I mean so it's it's really it comes down to the work and the integrity of the person that's viewing what you're putting on display and then making up their minds whether they like it or not I, I, I don't think it makes a difference. You know, with all of your, your background, your interest in theater and fashion and designing environments, did production design ever cross your mind as a career trajectory? Or is it something you would consider doing in the future? Um, production of like theater productions or? Theater productions or events or movies. I would love to design a pop concert. Oh, good. Um, yeah, yeah. I would love to do that. Is there a particular pop star that you would pick to to design for? Oh, anyone who'll have me at this point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's just it's something that I'm kind of interested in in doing. I kind of I listen to a lot of music when I'm designing and I'd like to incorporate that into my own shows. It's so important. You know, like when we did the department store collection in Milan last year, you know, I spent six months choosing violin and piano concertos that fit perfectly with the pieces and the collections and the ambience of this fictitious department store. Mm -hmm. And it really made a difference because it took people kind of out of this Milan chaos and into this kind of serene space. So I listen to music a lot when I'm designing and, you know, sometimes my head all of a sudden starts designing a pop concert you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> what's like the majority of the kind of music that you tend to listen to when you're designing I like music that has a cinematic quality to it and then at the same time I'll also kind of listen to electro or new wave or something classical or yeah so a good sorts, mix. really yeah 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 there isn't kind of any particular kind of genre of music it, it, it kind of it's quite good because it will I'll be designing the pieces or the exhibition and and then I think all oh, this kind of music would go well with that and then it would kind of propel the, the design process for me 
you know, in looking at your work and in looking at the way that you display it, it's very meticulous. And I think I read somewhere that you mentioned you were a workaholic and a perfectionist and you never leave any stone unturned, I guess. And you just make sure all the details are perfect. Have you ever experienced that to be like a difficulty in getting things done? Is there any point that you feel like it's more of an obstacle? I actually, I've not described myself as a workaholic before because I don't really know what kind of defines that exactly or how many hours a week you'd have to work to define that. I I do have a very strong work ethic though and I am working all the time, including weekends. But I would definitely say, yes, I am a perfectionist for sure. And I try not to leave every stone unturned. In fact, my team really laugh um, in London in the studio because... They want to create this neon sign that says never 100% happy above my office door. <laughs> because that's, my, that's my general comment to everything, even if I like it. You know, when they, when they, when the production team bring in like a new sample, I'm like, yeah. And they're like, are you happy? And I'm like, not 100% happy, but yeah. And my natural instinct is to see the floor. And I always kind of usually can work out what can be changed with that floor, but There isn't always time. So being a perfectionist is a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it's obviously a huge benefit because it enables me to be able to see the whole vision and to execute it as well as I can. But at the same time, it can slow things down sometimes. And I've started to learn as I have my business that sometimes I need to try and be happy with 90%, you know, Um, and kind of let the other bit go. But for me, 10% can make 50% of the difference. Has it ever been hard for you to hire other people to do certain tasks? It can be. I guess I'm quite focused on the design vision and I know exactly what I want instinctively always. So it can be sometimes a bit tricky for the team, I guess. But, you know, the longer that somebody works for you, they start to kind of understand the DNA or how I work as well. And you get to a point where you almost don't have to kind of say it. You you kind of give a nod and they know what you mean and then it sort of happens. But it can be tricky sometimes, yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like new hires need to learn the sort of Libroom language and get accustomed to a kind of communication that helps them understand? Of course. I mean, you know, we we have a business to run and, you know, there there is a design philosophy behind what I do, but then also what the business does. We are a brand. So any designers that come in have to kind of learn to adopt that DNA. But that doesn't mean that I'm, you know, not open to ideas and suggestions and things because I would be a fool if I if I wasn't you know Mm. and also there isn't always time as well you know as the company gets bigger and projects get larger and we're designing more and more I can't do absolutely 100% of everything so I'm fortunate enough to have an amazing team who work incredibly hard and incredibly late and a so passionate about what we do and you know kind of always go that extra mile so I'm very lucky it's very much a team effort. You've accomplished so much already at such a young age you've already you know had one two three different career pivots and won Mm -hmm. several awards and worked in a lot of different industries and we've talked a lot about you know the sort of path that got you there but what would you say has been the greatest struggle, either professionally or personally, 
that was getting in your way or still does get in your way? Time. That's just time. Is it your personal time management skill or just not having an, enough? <laughs> not having enough time, I think. I mean, there's so many projects and so many things that I want to work on and so many ideas that I have and that the company has that we want to embark on and so many ambitions. And it's having the time to keep all the plates spinning. You know, at the end of the day, we have a business to run and that's that's a challenging thing. And sometimes that can get in the way of me wanting to kind of do more creative projects in a sense. Mm -hmm. So it's just having the time to do everything. So, you know, you have an interest in fashion, an interest in interiors, and now you're doing mostly products. But let's say you woke up tomorrow and none of those job opportunities existed. What would you do? Like, what kind of career would you get yourself into if, if those were not available? Uh, probably hairdressing. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> I've always been very good with hair. Yeah. When I was younger, like before I was going into acting, so this is like from the age of six and seven, like my, my mom said that I always said I wanted to be a hairdresser. So I think I could probably do that. Oh, I'm sure you could. <laughs> yeah. I've done wedding hair once before. I feel like it would be very Edward Scissorhands. Like super, like you'd be like cutting shapes into people's hair. and Yeah, yeah, it would be bizarre, I'm sure. <laughs> I think it would be architectural and avant-garde and would probably incorporate mixed media. <laughs> and would be very successful, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, no, that, that, that could be fun. Okay, you're very highly regarded in the design industry and I'm sure in, in many industries. And you've mentioned a few of your influences in the fashion world, but... Who are some of your other influences, you know, either historically or contemporaries in any industry that you find influence your work or your thought processes? Oh, OK. So I can't say fashion designers. You can. Absolutely. <laughs> OK. I guess in my current field, I think people such as Sir Terence Conran is a big influence mm -hmm. and being kind of British and flying the flag and as a businessman and a designer, I think he's pretty remarkable. Designers such as Philip Stark, I think when I was younger and entering into this industry, I hugely admired his work and his aesthetic and just his point of difference as a, as a designer, particularly during the kind of Morgan's Hotel phase, I think. Mm -hmm. Designers such as Alexander McQueen, you know, who I was fortunate to meet a number of times and uh you know his work just i think is incredible you know mm -hmm. and i think everybody is in agreement that yes. he's a complete genius but yes. what i loved so much about his work was he was kind of like the sort of triple threat he had it all kind of you know he could execute the the work impeccably he was an amazing Taylor, and then he would also put on these incredible theatrical spectacles that were always very different as well, things that we hadn't seen before. So I love loved his work and still do. I, I, I love what Sarah Burton does for the band also. Is there anything that people might be surprised to find out about you? Are you like a terrible singer or are you really great at cooking as well? Any fun facts? 
Well, I can't cook at all. <laughs> I don't cook ever. So um, that's something that I'm completely hopeless at. I can tap dance very well. Did you bring your taps with you to New York? <laughs> just in case things went really badly with the store and I could hit the street. Yeah, well, just, in, just in case your your place had a great floor, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I I need to invest in a in a new pair of tap shoes. Mine are a bit small from when I was a kid, but I'm sometimes <laughs> if I'm drunk, yeah, that, that, that can happen. Okay, that's um, a new goal of mine to get yeah. drunk with Lee Broom and get a tap dance show. <laughs> okay, yeah, I'll have to be in the right shoes. <laughs> Do you remember any of the lines or anything from when you were in the Royal Shakespeare Company? Mm. Oh, God. Not. God, that's going way back now. Um, No, I don't think I can. Um, One of the roles I had wasn't even a speaking part. So, yeah, I'm I'm not sure. No, not offhand. I was hoping for you to bust out some Hamlet or something. (laughs) <laughs> oh, um, I think I used to, I used to, the first few lines of Richard III, I used to know maybe. What was your favorite part to play? At the Royal Shakespeare Company? Yeah. Well, actually, it wasn't a Shakespearean play, which was my favorite. It was Wizard of Oz, the musical. Oh, yeah. That's a and good one. I was, <laughs> I was the mayor of the Munchkins. <laughs> oh! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So oh. that that was a particular favorite, I think. Yeah, but um, that was an amazing experience being in that company. Yeah, uh, yeah. You mentioned you did some commercials, some television commercials. Are there any we can dig up on YouTube that we would enjoy? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, fortunately not. I've already looked and checked. Um, I didn't do too many commercials actually. I did a toothpaste commercial and I did two road safety commercials as well. And actually, those were in Spanish, I had to speak Spanish in those, and it was a kind of road safety commercial for Spanish TV. Very odd. But, oh. um, Did you know Spanish yeah. or you just had to memorize no, the lines? No, no, I had to memorize it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. What a fascinating You're not going to get life. me to say that, are you? <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> All right. So what's next for Lee Broom? What, are you going to put out a pop album or write a book? We already know you're, you're probably going to put on some amazing exhibition at London Design Week. But what else do you have planned for the long term? For the long term, a, a lot of stuff. There's so many things that I haven't designed yet that I would like to design and um, that are on my kind of list, um, whether that would be kind of under the Lee Broom brand or whether it would be a collaboration. But there's you know, number of things that I would like to do there. What's at the top of that list? Top of the list is I would like to design some kind of more technology stuff. So I'd like to design some stuff for iPods and a record player and things like that. Okay. I have a lot of ideas for those kind of things. And also I'd like to design other some other furniture pieces that I haven't done before, like do not design a bed. Uh, a bar cart and uh, also kind of some fashion stuff as well I think would be good I'm always designing a lot of jewelry um, Mm. all the time so I will probably like to get some of that work out at some point Um, but it's just having the time see Uh, that's the difficulty but actually when I'm designing products I'm always sketching and sometimes I'll kind of take a break 
than the sketching by sketching something completely different, sort of not furniture or lighting related. So that could be an outfit or jewellery or shoes or things like that. So there's, there's a lot of stuff in there. Just a quick logistic question. How do you keep track of all your ideas? Do you catalog your sketchbooks? To be honest, I've got a very good memory for anything that's visual, but I have a pretty bad memory for everything else. But I kind of overcompensate that with the with the sort of visual catalogue. So anything that I see, even if it's like from a couple of years back that I was engaged with, I kind of almost store it in a in a file in my head and then I'll see something new and then I can zip back to that and then put the two together. So, you know, like a piece of architecture with a belt that somebody's wearing on the street or something. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I have a really good memory for anything that's visual. I also keep lists in my phone of, you know, kind of like hundreds of product ideas. Mm -hmm. I have sketchbooks, which actually I don't always look back through to, but should do. Uh, Hundreds of sketchbooks. And yeah, just that's kind of how I work. But like I said, I've got a pretty good memory for anything that's visual. Nice. So what would you do for fun or to pass the time if you were to be retired? (laughs) <laughs> I can't ever imagine myself retiring. I knew you were going to say that. Like, I know. Like, that just sounds absurd <laughs> to me. Retire from what? It's like it doesn't even feel like a job. You well, know? I guess you can design up until you die, right? I mean. Of course. Of course you can. Yeah. You know, you can be creative up until you die. So, you know, I just don't want to focus on dying. So, you know, I'm going to keep working. <laughs> well, we hope that you have a very long life because we want to see all of the wonderful things that you are going to design. Exactly. Thank you so much. As prolific as you can be, the society's better for it. Yes. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. Very kind. Are there any specific new projects that you have that you want our listeners to know about? Only that we're working on our show for London Design Festival, which is going to be called Opticality. And that's going to be focused around our new optical light and optical illusion. And also I'm working on Milan next year. Okay. And so for our listeners who can't make it to London Design Week, but would love to see your work, where is the best place for them to look? Is that your website? Yeah, LeeBroom.com or Instagram, which is at LeeBroom and the same for Twitter. It's also at LeeBroom as well. It's been so wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much for sharing your stories with us. Thank you very much. It's been great to speak to you too. Wow. Wow is right. (laughs) (laughs) What an accomplished human. And he's the same age as me. It makes me feel like the laziest person on earth. (laughs) Oh, yeah. No, I feel like I haven't even scratched the surface. And he's already dug a giant gorge of gorgeousness. (laughs) I know. I know. What an amazing trajectory, too, to just zig and zag all over the place. But it all kind of comes together in the end, which is amazing. I mean, it really does make sense when you think about his background in theater and his flair for creating these dramatic spectacles, these events and these these environments that go along with his products, not to mention his flair for creating environment. You know, I get that he has a very singular vision and that he's instinctively always very in tune with what he wants and wants to see. 
how did he figure out how to turn it into such a successful business? You know, I know he had that partner, Mackie, when he was doing interiors, but now he's pretty much on his own with a team, right? Yeah, it's incredible how he's been able to be successful with pretty much everything he's touched. It's kind of like Midas. And I think part of it might have to do with his perfectionism because, you know, I know he said he's not a workaholic, but I mean, he's got to be. And it's not a bad thing. It's just he he's always thinking about creativity and, you know, what he could make or how things can be. And he's also kind of carved out his own niche in the design world because he he's different than other designers. He puts on a spectacle. He draws a crowd. And that's right, it's much more like it. a fashion show. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I mean, I guess he brought up a good question, which is how did he find workaholism? And I think workahol <laughs> is what you consume when you're avoiding other things in your life, right? Workahol- workaholism is a way to avoid personal relationships. But yeah, it's, it's more not- of a negative thing, yeah, I guess. But it's not workaholism if it's what you want to be doing, if you're running toward something that you want to be doing. Right. And so I get his sort of distinction with that word, but yeah, yeah I think he probably is working all the time and he's only I love I love that sign they're gonna hang over his door where he's never 100% happy I love that they want to put it in neon yes that's even better it's well, like you can't also, miss it I also love because it's a little bit of a window into the environment there clearly he's you know a demanding and perfectionistic you know he has high standards which is mm-hmm. great that's why his products and designs are so tight but his team is able to poke fun at him too. Oh yeah, so I it think seems he, like they're having fun over yeah, there. Yeah, I think he has a pretty good sense of humor. I mean, you have <laughs> to be if you worked in a, in a sex shop through school. <laughs> yes, yes. I love that he said it was boring too, which is really funny because you you would never have expected that to be boring. <sighs> it's too corporate. <laughs> <laughs> right, it was a chain. <laughs> Well, I am really excited to have spoken to him. He's such a multidimensional person, and I'm really looking forward to seeing what he has this year for London Design Festival. Okay, Jamie, and you and I have to get him drunk so that he can do some tap dancing for us. Yes. That's my goal. Absolutely. (laughs) Okay, thanks for listening, you guys. Please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and go over to cleverpodcast.com. That's where you can read the show notes and you can see all these images of Lee and Lee's work, including the crystal bulb, which we talked about, which is gorgeous. And when I first fell in love with him. Mm -hmm. And don't forget to sign up for our newsletter so you can get notified about new episodes and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Clever Podcast. We love to hear from you. And we would love to know if you're a designer, where you get your inspiration from. Yeah. Yeah. And your feedback is always appreciated. This episode of Clever was edited by Chris Modal of your studio with music by L1011. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? 
elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.